Hey, it's True Crime Tuesday. The growing calls across the nation to defund the police. To end policing as we know it. Off the charts violence in New York City. 11 people shot in just eight hours on Sunday. This is Sunday. about the police officers, officers who every single day put on that uniform and they run towards danger when we run away from it. Guns up and giddy up. Wolfpack, welcome to Failure to Stop. This is True Crime Tuesday. This is the show designed to fill your life with murder, mystery, and mayhem. Folks, this is a hallowed season. It is the season of Halloween. It's a spooky time. And uh, although we are here to educate, entertain, and inform first responders, we're also here to give you all those spine-tingly feelings of true crime. This month, Kendra Drama. Hello, Kendra. Hi, John. Hello. This month we are doing. Uh, we have we have five Tuesdays in, in October this year, which only happens every one thousand years or so. And uh, this this month we're doing all the true crime cases that inspired all the hit horror movies. So uh, it was uh, last week or the week before we did Ed Gein, who inspired Psycho and Leatherface and uh, Buffalo Bill from Sons of the Lambs. And this week we're doing a case that has inspired uh, the Strangers, which you just saw that I legally watched. I did that to prove that I watched it because Kedra has been really pushing me to watch movies right here so I know what the hell is going on. So I did that to prove that I watched it. Pretty good movie. If you haven't watched it, go out and watch The Strangers. It's only about 85 minutes long, which I kind of like. They didn't add a lot of extra padding. It was just kind of a nice, creepy story. We're going to talk about the real case that inspired that. Of course, the the true case is actually, uh, in my opinion, it's even more horrible and scary uh, than the movie. Uh, but before we get to that, Kendra, just how have you been? How's the last last week for you? It's been really busy, but good. Just doing a whole lot of research and not sleeping and, you know, yeah. same if thing you, you do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so if, you, if you guys don't know, Kendra's a full-time student. She's a part-time podcaster and uh, she's a real busy person. So we're uh, grateful to have her here uh, no one can replace her. So thank you, Kendra, for being here. I appreciate you. I am the one unique white woman in the world. You're the one unique one white woman. Place. We talked about that last week where uh, we true crimes, basically basic white woman show. So thank you for being here. We appreciate you. Before we get started with all the mystery, murder, and mayhem, I wanted to mention our sponsors who make this show possible. Spooky a sponsor first. That means ghost bed. For if you're a fan of failure to stop, you know that Ghost Bed has been our number one sponsor since way a long time before I got here, way way back in the day. Uh, Ghost Bed's been bringing you failure to stop. We love Ghost Bed. Great company. They uh, care about first responders and veterans. That's why they're going to give you the offer code Wolfpack. You can go there and support first responders and veterans, and you can do that by supporting us because we support you, of course. They have a great technology there at GhostBed. Sleep so good it's scary, as Eric loves to say. They have great uh, technology over there, their proprietary cooling technology that keeps you cool, even on a nice October evening, just like this one. Uh, adjustable bases, cooling mattresses. You can get them uh, with 0% down, 0% financing, even if you have basic white woman credit. <laughs> we love ghost bed because they're the only mattress that's made in the united states of america kendra i don't know if you remember but back in the day i want to bring this back because drew won't do it with me on thursday but we used to go it's the only mattress made in that and they, they, they do the usa chant from rocky four have you seen rocky four i'm sure they all kind of blend together after the second one okay. they do not uh <laughs> for me they rocky, do. 
because Rocky Five is the bad one. But actually, uh, this this is a good time for me to mention that November we're actually doing all the true crime cases that have inspired boxing movies. So look forward yep. to that next month. <laughs> Just like I'm gonna quit before that. <laughs> Name but, four boxing movies right now. Raging Bull, Rocky, <laughs> Rocky Two, Rocky Three. <laughs> no. <laughs> Creed. Okay. Creed Two. No, um, you can't name sequels. It's a oh, franchise. They're discrete boxing movies. Uh, that one uh, where the woman boxes, it's a Clint Eastwood movie, and she she gets put in, in the, it doesn't turn out so good for her. What's the name of that movie? Million Dollar Baby. Thank you. That one counts as one that I mentioned. <laughs> um, okay. And you said four boxing movies? What's a fourth I boxing think you did movie? Four. Southpaw? That's the immediate one that came to my head. Thank you. All right. Well, I don't think I named four if we don't count franchises because Creed and Rocky are part of the same franchise. So okay. Well, Creed continues on with Rocky. Well, that's why we we're a just... team. Together, we did four. It's fine. Yes, together. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad you didn't say name ten boxing movies because I that would have been a whole deal. No. Anyway, so what are we doing? Oh, so we're going back to our sponsors. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. So they used to do the chant where they go, "It's the only mattress made in the good old USA." USA, USA, USA. Yeah. Yes. So Mike and Eric did this, but because of the lag of technology, they never got it quite right. So it was a process of perfection, right? You and I have have inherited the mantle of failure to stop, at least on Tuesday nights. We're carrying the torch forward into the future. I would like to bring that back. So if you can, if you can just listen to the first 100 episodes of failure to stop, still available on YouTube, and just kind of just listen for the ghost bed ad reads. I'd appreciate it. Anyway. No uh, that's behind us. So go to ghostbed.com forward slash Wolfhack. Get sleep. So good. It's scary. Folks, we're serious about Ghostbed. We joke about it, but they they have been a loyal sponsor to us. So if you want to support your favorite podcast, you want to see us going, continuing on in 2024, support us through Ghostbed. Also, uh, officerprivacy.com. Uh, are you uh, one of those police officers that just changes your name on Facebook? Do you think that that's going to be good enough? As we've discussed on the show before, you are just one shift away from being in a shitstorm. We know that this country loves police officers until we don't love them anymore. And, uh, you know, uh, these police officers in Minneapolis, uh, police officers uh, in uh, maybe not Memphis so much, but these police officers. Oh, you know, God. <laughs> Yikes. They, uh, they're just regular cops, just like you and me, except, you know, I was never a cop. They're regular cops, just like you and me. Until one day they go to work and they're they're put in that position where they have to they have to take a life or they have to do something controversial. And you know that the world doesn't understand you as a police officer. That's why we're here to tell your side of it. But you may need extra protection in this world that denigrates and breaks down police officers. And your family certainly deserves that protection. That's another form of insurance at officerprivacy.com. Go over there, officerprivacy.com forward slash wolfpack. They've got a whole kit of tools that you can use to get back your identity from identity brokers, people that are going to pass around information from you. If the news breaks and CNN wants to find you, you might as well make it as hard as possible. You don't want them to have your name, your address, your phone number. You don't want a gaggle of protesters showing up outside your house. Officerprivacy.com is going to do their best to protect you. Go over there, use the offer code. Let them know that Failure Stop sent you. We appreciate that. And Kendra, finally, my favorite one is Factor Meals. I don't know if you eat, but like I love delicious food. Factor Meals is someone that does that. And if you're like me and you live on the fucking moon, 
going to the grocery store is like an act of God or Congress just to get that done. Um, sometimes, honestly, Kendra, when I am hungry, I am so far away from a grocery store that I just go to sleep. But when I have factor meals in the house, I have them brought right to my front door. They're brought in a nice box, taped up. It's nice, secure. All the food's packed inside. It's in an insulated package. It's got ice in there. It keeps it fresh. It's not frozen food. Okay, These are not hungry man dinners. These are not lean cuisine meals. It's delicious food. You throw it in the microwave for two minutes or you can heat it up conventionally. And it's just like your mom cooking for you. It's wonderful food. Got 300 options over there. You could set it all up. It's fun to go on the website. You set that up. We'll give you 50% off with the Wolfpack code Wolfpack50. And then in the future, the food's going to come to you and you're going to start reaping the benefits of your own wise decisions. So go over there, make a good decision, feed yourself right, take care of yourself, mental health, psychology. It all comes from sleep. It all comes from eating. It all comes from security of knowing that your identity is secure. So our sponsors are top notch. Go support those. So Kendra, turning now to true John. crime. Come back to the show. Uh, we're talking about the Kenny Cabin murder, murder. So this inspired The Strangers. And also, have you seen the movie Cabin 28? I, I saw that on IMDb, but I don't think I've ever seen it. No, I haven't either. It looks like right up my alley, though. I like the like really crappy B and C rate horror movies. <clears throat> and they're always free on Amazon. And they're just an hour of ridiculousness. And that's kind of what that looks like. But I haven't seen so, it yet. So so I know that you like, it was Return of the Living Dead, right? I'm tasked with watching mm -hmm. that. But yes. what's your other like guilty pleasure, terrible horror movie? Oh Maybe, my. What's your favorite Any... one? Oh. That's hard. I really, really enjoy. That's what she said. <laughs> you know, actually, it's funny because I actually really enjoy um, any movie that has... Uh, how do I explain this? Boxing. All the actresses, all the actresses are actually like porn stars and they cast them for these really bad horror movies like vampire hookers. Um, Nazi surfers must die. Uh, uh, Hollywood chainsaw hookers, Franken hooker. They're all hookers and um, <laughs> they're, they're really bad movies, but they're fucking hilarious. And I just, they put me in the mood to just, be spooky i don't know they make me laugh so any of um, those yeah there was a show you mentioned <laughs> frankenstein there's a movie with aaron eckhart and, and it's i can't remember what it's about it's about frankenstein or something it's about it's about dr frankenstein i think anyway uh so anyway you don't need to understand the plot of the movie to understand this point but i remember watching this movie and this is why i don't get into horror movies right so the bad guy played played by aaron eckhart he has all these lackeys right and uh, so some of his lackeys let him down. The hero's doing a great job or whatever. And uh, so, like, he kills one of them as a demonstration of what a bad guy he is. You know, in movies, bad guys are always killing their lackeys to show how bad they are. And then he turns to the other lackeys and is like, hurry up and, you know, finish this machine that will turn all humans into vampires or whatever. <laughs> and, and And it's just like, you know, these lackeys are really letting you down. It's like... You're telling me that, like, if you're immortal, you don't have time to earn a degree in science to make this machine yourself? <laughs> it's like, I, I do not have time to earn a degree, fix my machines. I don't know. Guys, I am sorry for that story. It just was another reason why I can't watch movies. I get I get uh, thrown out of them by little moments like that that don't make sense. 
The only vampires that I know of in movies that like make something with their lives are the uh, the Cullens from Twilight. But I'm not going to sit here and admit that I watch Twilight as a white woman who enjoys true crime and all the other accoutrements of being a white woman. <laughs> Accoutrement. Uh, it was I, Frankenstein, Aaron Eckhart played Adam in that movie, 2014. Uh, you know, I love Aaron Eckhart from <clears throat> Thank You for Smoking and uh, Dark Knight. Other than that, I just, I don't know. I'm not sure that you should really go for him. But so uh, <laughs> Cabin 28 is a, a movie that this inspired. I'm going to I'm gonna help tell this story because uh, I did a lot of research this week. We wanted to see what it's like if uh, both of us tell a story rather than me just endlessly questioning you. So uh, <laughs> this case started out as, as, a, as a, a little bit of a triple homicide, I guess, uh, to set the stage. Uh, I'd jump in at any point here if I miss anything or if you've got an interesting tidbit or uh, whatever. But it starts, uh, starts uh, in 1980. And it starts uh, on the East Coast, I believe, Connecticut. There's this lady, and her name is Glenna Sue Sharp. She just goes by Sue. And uh, she's got a daughter who's uh, named Tina and a son named John. And uh, a bunch she has of five children. She has five. So yes. you can even keep them straight. I know one's named Greg, and he's like five. He's got a bunch so, of kids. Yeah, go ahead if you know the children because that's actually really important to keep all the it is important. Yeah, we've got 15 year old, 15 year old John, 14 year old Sheila, 12 year old Tina, 10 year old Rick, and five year old Greg. Okay, so there's a falling out, they get thrown out of their house. Uh, the husband, the dad basically tells them to get the hell out of here, and they move to this town, uh, they move to a trailer in the interim, which nothing terrible happens there. And then they move to this town called Ketty, California. And what Ketty is, is up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And it's kind of this failing resort town. Like it actually seems kind of creepy just from the outset. So like you've got a town that's failing. Uh, at some point, uh, it was a stop for trains that were passing through. And you know the old story. No one rides trains anymore. The trains get diverted. There's no more gold in them. There are hills. The trains are not coming anymore. But there's still a community here. So what was once uh, the Ketty Cabin Resort that has all these pristine little, uh, you know, kind of rustic cabins, uh, these kind of turn to uh, cheaper housing. And the town kind of comes a place uh, where, where transients and nomadic people kind of come and go. It's not a big town. It's north of Quincy. And uh, it's not, a, not very big, not, not a lot of population. But people are coming and going. And it's, so these cabins kind of become low-income housing. So uh, they separated. Sue separates from her husband. She gets kind of some kind of stipend from the Navy because he's a service member, and uh, they're uh, they're divorced. So the alimony kind of, I guess kind of comes straight from the Navy, and she's being paid what was it two hundred fifty dollars a month or something like that. Yeah, two hundred fifty a month. Some very low amount, and I know what you're what you're thinking. Well, you know, to, that's incredibly low. That's basically nothing in nineteen eighty one. That comes out to like more than $800 today, but it's still not a lot to raise five kids on. Uh, but it's, it's basically going to be paying the rent. So she's got to have some kind of some sort of other form of income. And her, her where her income comes from at some point is a matter of, in the case it's kind of disputed or it's, it might be a clue as, well, as to what happened. But sometime uh, on April 11th or April 12th, depending on, on what, uh, when this happened, uh, something very went, bad went down at uh, Sue's cabin. 
And uh, was it uh, which which girl was it that came back in the morning Sunday morning? Was it Sheila? Well, I have a pretty me. good I have a pretty go good ahead. timeline here. If you want me to just go through that. Um, oh, I love timeline. So we can they, keep, they keep me from straight. rambling. Yes. Yes, I got you. I got you. So, uh, just to go back to backtrack a little bit, they moved to the cabins in April of '81. So they're only here for like not even two weeks before this happens, which kind of later on, we'll talk about theories and stuff like that of what happened, but it's kind of weird to me that all of this came to a head within like 11 or 12 days. I don't know what that's about, but um, so April 11th, Sue, Sheila, and Greg drive to a nearby town to pick up the uh, 10-year-old from a baseball tryout. When they're driving back, they see John, the other son, the oldest son, and his friend Dana trying to hitchhike back to uh, to Kenny. So they stop and pick them up. All of them, everyone goes back to the cabins. 3.30 the same day, John and Dana hitchhike again to Quincy, where they're last seen alive in the downtown area. Um, Sheila goes to her friend's house. They live in the resort as well, the Seabolts. She goes over there around 8 p.m. Her sister, Tina, the 12-year-old, follows her over there. And Tina goes back home at about 10 o'clock at night. So, at this point, uh, Sue... At 10 o'clock, Sue, Tina, Greg, Rick are at the house that we know of. Um, so the night goes on. The next morning, Sheila comes back to the house from the Seabolts to change because they're going to go to church together. Um, she comes home around between 7 and 8 o'clock in the morning and she opens the door to find her mother, John, and his friend Dana dead on the living room floor. Oh my gosh. And, <clears throat> yeah, the scene is pretty violent. It's very bloody. Um, it's very much like the house is in a disarray. Like there's just crap everywhere. Um, Sheila goes back to the Seabolts and gets the father who comes back over and goes in and sees the scene. Uh, somehow or another, Rick and Greg along with their friend Justin Smart, were asleep in the bedroom just off the living room where the bodies were found. They were still sleeping. Almost like they like didn't hear anything or see anything. So the father, the C- Mr. Siebel, he goes in, he sees this, he sees the boys. He gets them out through the window so they don't have to see what's occurred. Um, and obviously then they call law enforcement. Uh, one issue, nobody can find Tina. She's gone. And she's 12, mind you. But uh, the police did not initiate, uh, you know, what we would call today an Amber Alert, which is, you know, uh, a widespread announcement that, uh, you know, uh, an endangered juvenile has been abducted. That didn't even exist at this point. But they're a little bit underreactive to the missing Tina initially. They are. Um <clears throat> And 
during the investigation, they did do the right thing and contact the FBI. I think uh, they probably realized they were a little in over their heads with this because, like you mentioned earlier, it's a really small town. It's probably very quiet, not a lot going on. And now they have a missing 12-year-old and a triple homicide on their hands. Um, so they contact the FBI and the FBI comes out initially, but for whatever reason, they don't feel like there's enough evidence or signs to say that Tina was abducted, which hello. Well, let's go through the signs. Do they think maybe <laughs> she just got scared and ran away? Let's, let's go through the crime scene and see what yes. uh, they're talking about. So let's, so yeah, <laughs> let's um, do it. Okay, let's do it. So the scene, all the victims were uh, bound with cords and medical tape, duct tape, all that good stuff. Sue had been stabbed repeatedly in the chest and neck. Um, the suspect was stabbed her so hard that he or she uh, pierced through her la- larynx. Am I saying that right? Larynx. I believe it's. I believe it's larynx. Yes. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. I think. I think they they stabbed through her larynx and. Did it sever uh, the the bone at the back? The her spinal it, it cord. Did, yeah, it did serious damage, and I believe a knife that was found at the scene was bent to a thirty degree angle. Yes, uh, I'm assuming that's the one that they used to do that because that takes a lot of force to get through somebody's neck like that. Yeah. And the, uh, just just yeah, it's stabbing somebody's neck. It's not like what you see in the movie where they just go through like that, like to get mm-hmm. through like the muscles and the fibers in the neck. And, and all this stuff, it's it's like cutting through, forgive the analogy, but it's like cutting through the worst parts of a turkey. If you've carved a turkey before, you're gonna come you're gonna go through ligaments and, and different different fibrous tissues, and it's harder than hell to get through that. So in order to stab somebody like that to get through that tissue, to get to the floor, and then bend the knife, I mean you are really stabbing the hell out of her. I mean, that's a vicious, violent act. It's uh, yeah, the investigators make a note that it's apparent that whatever occurred was a personal attack. Like they Seems think that way. They, yeah. They obviously think that the sharps knew their attackers. Um, the that's, imprint- a good que- that's a good question. I don't mean to interrupt you. You just, you inspire no. all these good thoughts. Was there any, any signs of forced entry into the home or anything? No. Um, I will get to that in a second because it's kind of weird. Um, okay. But the imprint uh, Sue was stabbed and beaten and all this. Um, the imprint of the butt of a long gun was also found on the side of her head. Um, that gun was later uh, identified as a Daisy 880 pellet gun. So um, I would think that that was used to intimidate the uh, victims into complying with whatever these people were doing. Because obviously you're not going to kill anybody with a pellet gun. No. Um There was no sign of sexual assault, um, which is good. John was stabbed and bludgeoned. Dana was also bludgeoned by two hammers. So the boys were beaten to death, essentially. Wasn't, Um, uh, I don't mean to correct you. I just wasn't one. One of them was bludgeoned, but the other one was actually strangled. Wasn't it Dana, the friend who was strangled? So the autopsies revealed that Sue and John died of blunt force trauma. I would assume that it was the pellet gun to the side of the head for Sue and John was bludgeoned with a hammer. Dana's cause of death was strangulation. However, the detectives noted that his beating that he suffered 
I'm assuming post-mortem because it was so bad, or maybe pre and post, I don't know, uh, was very violent and so violent that there was blood spatter on all four walls of the living room, the ceiling, all the way to the back steps, inside of the bedroom on the bed sheets that was adjacent to the living room. So the way the house was set up, it was a, a living room and a kitchen, like a kitchenette type thing. And just off the living room was a bedroom. Inside that bedroom, there was blood spatter. Yeah. We, so, we studied blood spatter. We, we studied the, the science of blood spatter, how that works in college, actually. It was probably the, the best class I had. And the way that blood gets onto a ceiling is actually through a process called cast off. When mm -hmm. you're bludgeoning someone and you take the hammer and you strike it down, and then when you retreat to strike again, as you take the hammer back quickly, a lot of the blood will fly off and it'll fly onto the walls and the ceiling. And when you're looking at the droplets and you're measuring the droplets, you could tell a lot about the speed and the angle that that blood, uh, you, how it arrived onto the ceiling. And although it would be very clear that these people were bludgeoned to death, I mean, you have bodies right there, uh, you could, it, it just helps you drive home the absolute savagery that these people were beaten so hard that as this person is hitting them, blood is flying all around the room. Yeah, and into other rooms that are not, it's not as if they were in the doorway of this bedroom or even near it. If you see the crime scene photos, you can tell the bodies were, there's a couch in the middle of the living room and the bodies were kind of more towards the front door. Opposite the front door is the bedroom. So they're, they're really, like you said, they're being completely savage with this and it's very violent. It's very aggressive and it, I'm assuming it went on for a while to get it to be that bad. There's one last detail uh, about the bodies, just because I'm a stickler for the details. And if you please, like murder, mystery and please. mayhem, well, I don't mean to, to step on your, on your energy and your momentum. Just no, I'm saying, detail. please go. <laughs> oh, you know, folks, I don't know if you realize this, like we, we have to do this podcast as a stipulation of our divorce. So <laughs> not neither one of us is happy to be here, uh, but we are we are forced to do this. Thank you, Honorable Judge Henshaw, for setting it this is, up. It is court ordered. This, this is a, America's first court ordered podcast. Going back to Sue. <laughs> so she was stabbed through the throat. They were both uh, they were both bound uh, with electrical cords, with medical tape. The two boys were bound uh, separately and then together. But uh, one detail with, with Sue that's super important because uh, the way that you find a crime scene, the way that you find bodies is so illustrative for the, the killer psychology. Uh, she Her panties were removed. They were balled up and stuffed in her mouth and used as a gag. And then I believe it was tape that was placed over to keep her silent. And uh, so... In spite of that, like the first thing you think of when you hear that is you think sexual assault. She was not sexually assaulted. Uh, but before the killer left, they did uh, partially drape uh, something over her. I mean, it was still evident that she was naked. Uh, I believe it was over her face, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And something like that that they always go into on podcasts, which we won't go into too much because, you know, as as a former police officer, I think you know that that when people are sitting there you know, thinking about the murders they just committed. They don't think about what neat clues will I leave behind. Or I also don't think p people are possessed of very deep thoughts in a moment like that. This seems like a frenzied thing, something that's not well thought out. 
but a lot of times like in these true crime podcasts are like oh they didn't want the victim to look at them you know the the dead eyes gazing up from the floor was was just too much but it is no it is worth noting that she was partially covered and the boys were not so it's like since she was treated differently the boys were bound together does the killer know her specifically is she the motive is she the target you know if it was all just opportunity uh and this was about power if it was about sex you know you'd think if if you went to the trouble to do that uh that that rape would have been an inevitable outcome or something like that but Mm -hmm. it's so hard to know because these things aren't as conclusive as other other crime scenes that maybe you've heard of before that are more direct so the way that she was left the way that i won't say stage but the way she was left was sort of strange well they (laughs) no i appreciate that because you're absolutely right and i agree with you um so and it's a good point to keep in mind because i do think that sometimes there's a lot of speculation on a podcast on a true crime podcast because you don't know that you don't know the reason why it could have been an accident they could have been moving stuff around and i mean you don't know so yes the fantastical hollywood explanation of why killers do what they do is more fun to listen to it's you don't really know so i appreciate you bringing that up um (laughs) thank you for ignoring me (laughs) we have such passive aggressive texts throughout the day again this is court ordered neither one of us wants to be here we have to do this (laughs) um as you were saying earlier the there was no forced entry into the home and the phone was left hanging off the ringer so that nobody could make calls or bring calls in. There were some reports that said the line was cut. Some said it was just off the wall. Mm-hmm. Regardless, that occurred. So for all of you uh, young people who don't remember what phones are, like real phones, uh, you a would landline. have a cradle. You have a cradle and a handset. And if you didn't want someone to call in, you didn't want them to to. To, uh, you didn't want the phone to ring. You would take the, the handset off the cradle. You would get a dial tone saying, meaning basically go ahead and dial your number. But after a <laughs> while, it would beep to let you know that it's off the cradle. And then after that, it would just go silent. At that at that point, you know, no one can call in. You can call out. You have to replace the, the handset on the receiver until you get a dial tone again. But if you take the handset off the receiver, no one can call in. Uh, no one can call it until you, until you reset that. So if you're looking for a distraction-free environment, that's how you would do that. But sometimes you see it in old TV shows and movies where a character comes in, he's pissed off, he's had a bad day, walks over the phone, takes it off the hook. That's what that's about. He doesn't want anybody to call him. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I have my list of evidence here, but I think we covered it all. No sign of forced entry, no fingerprints. I think there was Two one... hammers. What do you make of that? What does that suggest to you? So... It was in the autopsy of uh, Dana, it was clear that he was beaten with two different types of hammers. One of them was recovered at the scene and the other one was missing, which is very odd. And I'm kind of foreshadowing a little bit, so sorry. But in my opinion, I think one of the hammers they probably found there, like a weapon Mm -hmm. of opportunity. And maybe the other one belonged to one of the killers and... It was specific or had their name on it or something, and they didn't want to leave it behind, so they took it with them. Well, you keep tiptoeing around around it. You keep saying killers and they, so you you think there's two people involved. Well, let's look at the scene and think about this, because there's three people, two of which are teenage boys. The other one's a grown-ass woman. Yeah, And a grown-ass woman. 
there's multiple weapons. And unless one person could overcome three people, there was a sign of struggle. So there was a fight um, based on the way the blood stains were on the carpet. Someone would have to be on PCP, which is possible to, or some sort of be some sort of mountain man to control three people all at once. It's very chaotic. I mean, I, I've been to calls and scenes where there's multiple people fighting with each other and it's, there's a lot going on. So to control somebody, granted they had a pellet gun, it's possible. Mm -hmm. They got them lined up on the couch and they just one by one mm -hmm. and a singular individual did that. But to me, it makes more sense that two people at least would come in and do this home invasion, essentially. Well, maybe not a home invasion. There's no fourth century, but mm -hmm. it turns into one right. at some point. So I do just, agree with your I agree with your two suspect model uh, just because I like to play Dick or excuse me, critical thinker. <laughs> I like to play critical thinker, a devil's advocate at every step of the way. Uh, you got somebody in there with with a gun. Yes. Welcome to podcasting with me. You got uh, somebody in there. Uh, they've got a gun. You've got two boys. Point the gun at him. I imagine the guy's sitting down. He's very relaxed. He's calm. Points the gun at him. Uh, tells the boys or one of the boys to uh, restrain mom, restrain, restrain Sue. And then uh, the boys, uh, one boy to uh, tape up the other one. And then finally, once you've got two that are, that are subdued or whatever, uh, maybe you can finally take care of the last one. Maybe the boys were first or then Sue. I'm sorry. I've never done this before. So I don't know the correct order in which you, you, you tape up and bind people. If it uh, were me. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you, John. But no, I love it, were, it. Go ahead. <laughs> if it were me and I was going to do that as a singular person, I would put a gun to John's head and tell Sue, I'm going to gonna fucking kill him if you don't do this. Oh, perfect. Yes. Doing that. That's uh, baby. That's, uh, yes, exactly. Like, uh, remember uh, in the Green Mile? Yes. This is about movies, but it's like, he killed him with the love boss. Because <laughs> if you haven't seen that movie, basically, this horrible guy, Wild Bill, uh, he commits crimes. Uh, he had these two girls he raped and killed both of them. And he told each of the girls that if either one of them screamed out, that they would kill the other girl. They were two sisters. So tells girl A, if you scream, I'm going to kill girl B. He tells girl B, if you scream, I'm going to kill girl A. Anyway, they, they use... Uh, well, Bill, in this scenario, use the affection and love that the sisters had for each other to keep them from uh, calling out for help. So it could very well be that situation. I'm not mm -hmm. at all terrified that you know exactly how to take uh, take control of three people at gunpoint, that you just like, I don't even need an accomplice. Back to the story. <laughs> it's all stuff I learned in the police with academy. An accomplice? Kedra with an accomplice, she could like murder an entire bus full of people. Not even, just her and that other accomplice, not even break a sweat. Go ahead. Okay. My mind is going to how to get rid of a body effectively and not have it be found. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> I don't want to be deposed later. So don't mention that here. <laughs> okay. So in all of the chaos and all of this uh, craziness that's going on, um, still again, there is a 12 year old girl missing and there's no sign of her anywhere. Good point. That's Last time Tina, she right? was, yes, her her shoes are gone, a coat of hers is gone. She's only twelve. She doesn't have a lot of possessions. I mean, she's not taking car keys and 
things like that. Well, she's definitely not taking a cell phone because it's 1981, but it didn't even um, exist. No. So she's gone. And like I said earlier, the FBI came initially, but because they had nothing to go on, they apparently backed off, which blows my mind because hello. I what learned the fuck else, else do you think happened? I learned something else today, just today about Tina, actually. And uh, I don't know if you heard this or not, but apparently she was a special needs kid. Oh, is that true? That's what they say, which back in 81, you know, if someone was in special needs, they could have just been uh, not not a very good student. You could have been placed in a Head Start program or something. You got to remember back in 81, this is really before we were massively like even um, diagnosing what we used to call ADD and more accurately call it ADHD and uh, a plethora of a spectrum of other behavioral disorders. And so who knows? You know, if you say she's a special needs student, she could just be someone who has what is way more commonly known now as ADHD. She just has problems paying attention in school. Her grades aren't just very good. It could be as simple as that. So we have no idea the level of functioning saying on something like, well, she's a special needs student or something like that. So, yeah. But if they did view her as being, uh, you know, having a diminished capacity, did they think maybe she saw the murder and fled into the woods? Uh, either way, if it's not the FBI looking for it, you should have Caddy Fire and Rescue or Quincy Fire and Rescue out there doing search and rescue in the woods for her, I would think. I don't know if they made that effort or not. I could not find anything on that. And <clears throat> sometimes with these older, I say older, it's not that old, but sometimes with these older cases. These John any, era murders, yes. <laughs> if you combine the time with where they're at, a lot of these investigations do get botched because they don't have the resources Sometimes just because of the time frame, like in the 80s, there was in 81, there was no DNA. The training was probably not great there. They probably just didn't know what the fuck to do, to be honest with you. They probably just had a very uh, black and white sense of, well, if this isn't there, then we're not going to do that, period. If if Kenny's you know? a resort town and a failing one at that, and they have a largely transient population... I'm guessing that the sheriff's office was the one doing the law enforcement here. There's probably no local PD. Yeah. If they're it's new to the area, office. if they're new to the area, probably no one even knew the girl. I mean, Sheila, who discovered her family, uh, would definitely be able to say, you know, where's Tina? I don't know where she's at. There's so much chaos and confusion, though, and she's beside herself. And like I said, no local authorities know the family. I mean, the other people who live in the neighborhood, I say that is a cluster of cabins. Could probably say she's missing, but yeah, I mean, they were they were probably horror struck and doing a hundred things. And you and I know that when a crisis happens, there's so much that all of a sudden is on your plate. And I don't want to say that like trying to attempting to locate a little kid is low priority because it's obviously the top priority. But I I can understand why. And when something that terrible happens, uh, it's it's not getting done right away like it should. Yeah. Uh, but there's also other kids at the scene who despite being only a few feet away from a vicious and savage attack with a hammer slept through the night uh do we want to talk about the kids that were there and and uh how they were discovered at the scene and how they how that all went yeah down? You, you have excellent timing because that's my next note is the interviews um of <laughs> good job so <laughs> the investigators obviously are doing what we call a neighborhood canvas, trying to get as much information as they can about what happened. There are neighbors that say at nine o'clock at night, they saw a green van parked in front of the Sharps house for a few, for a while. Um, 
Dana and John would still be in Quincy at that time, we presume, or maybe that we, was their ride home. We don't know. Yeah, we have no idea because the last okay. time they were seen alive was in downtown Quincy, but they left at 3.30. So we don't know what time that was or when they got back or anything like that. Keep going. <clears throat> One neighbor. Okay. <laughs> I will, damn it. <laughs> I'm currently doing that. Um, if you keep yelling at me, I'm going to call Judge Henshaw and make him... <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, why do you have his personal number? <laughs> I, wait, I don't want to know. Go back to go back to the story. That's the real reason we got divorced. Damn it! <laughs> you think you could just leave me for a successful attorney who became a judge? <laughs> Doesn't help that he's like ninety-five years old. I am not successful, like in a measurable sense. Okay, I get that, but. <laughs> I would like to think that I have a certain intangible. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, um, so, yes, the van in front of the house at 9 o'clock, a neighbor uh, in a cabin close by heard muffled screaming coming from somewhere at about 1.15 in the morning. That's not good. But they, they couldn't figure out where the source was. They kind of knew it was close, but they didn't call. I will say um, about that, uh, there was a different culture back in the 80s that um, stuff that goes on in families, you generally, it was seen as sort of taboo to report that. Like if a family had troubles, you just knew that family had troubles. If a, if a woman showed up, you know, to pick up Johnny from school and she had a black eye, you knew what was going on, but you didn't tell anybody. You viewed it as a family problem to get resolved by itself. So if you think there's just family problems going on in this cabin, which I hate to make a broad generalization, but you know this, these are low-income families. They're stressed out about money. I wouldn't be surprised if there's uh, you know, domestic stuff going on in these cabins maybe more regularly. Or like I just said, it's part of the broader culture, but they didn't always report these things. But there's also this thing I learned about in college that I have never heard from anyone else on earth, but it's called the bystander effect. You see, there was once this lady named Ketty Genovese, and she was being raped and beaten and murdered in a clear open view in the entire neighborhood. I believe this was in New York. Everyone could see and hear this. And they all heard poor Kitty down there yelling and screaming, and everyone thought the same thing. Somebody else will call it in. So, so poor Kitty Genovese, uh, she was found murdered, and not one goddamn neighbor uh, made a report. So it's a real human phenomenon where everyone just assumes that everyone else has got it. No one wants to be a hero. No one wants to get out of bed. Plus, these being rustic cabins, it's entirely possible that not every one of them had a phone. You know, if you go on vacation to these things, they're not all created equal. So, That's a good point, too. Yeah, I didn't take that into account, but you're right. Not every not every cabin even had, um, like, hot running water at this resort. So that's a good point. Um, they, the investigators also interviewed the three boys that were there. That night that seemingly sucked through this initially none of them they said none of them heard or saw anything but uh justin smart who was the neighbor boy that was staying the night he was put under hypnosis at some point in the investigation which kudos to them because wow and so this, <clears throat> so this is 10 year old rick five-year-old greg and then justin smart who's a neighbor boy they were sleeping in the room and they were they were unharmed in this attack. And correct. So Sheila comes, finds them. She she runs out, and then uh, they went and they contacted the property manager. And then I think it was uh, the Seabolt uh, matriarch or patriarch who came in, and he went around, 
and he saw the three boys in the back bedroom and he actually took them out through the window. Yes. Uh, so that they didn't have to see the carnage of their, their dead, their murdered mom and brother and friend. Correct. Which is very smart actually. Yeah. Um, so they didn't see the actual uh, occurrence, which is great. But Justin did, uh, while he was under hypnosis, say that he saw two men in the home. He described them to a volunteer sketch artist. A, and... a man that is constantly described as having no talent. Hey, folks, if you read hear a podcast about this, <laughs> you read any articles, they're all just like the police resorted to finding a man who had never before put pen to paper. They found someone who was completely <laughs> devoid of talent. S- s- someone who should probably be just totally disregarded respect like i'll show you this drawing in a second like folks you you know me i'm a little bit of an artist like i'm not a professional artist either i did illustrate a a book that didn't have to be realistic of course but of, of eric tanzi a real person that you all know and i could tell you that there's certain things about drawing a person where if you don't have any skill you end up with even as an adult you wind up with pretty much like a smiley face or a childish drawing or like, you know, so they said this person doesn't have any skill. I'm going to say they don't have skills as a forensic artist, which if you're going to sit down and draw someone from the verbal cues, like a professional artist would, that's a whole other thing than what I do. I cannot do that. So in a sense, this person has no skill in a strictly artistic sense. This person would be very good at drawing a bowl of fruit or a tree in late autumn, a November tree. Very good at that. Uh, probably good at uh, sketching a cloud, maybe watercolors or clay, maybe even sculpture is their thing. You're being so very they're not, generous. They're not a talentless person, but they did draw these people as our suspects. Boom. Not that good. And I also <laughs> want to say this about the drawings. <laughs> so people in 1981. We did not look that good back in the 80s, okay? Like this guy, this guy on the right, probably pretty accurate. We did not, and the mustaches in the eighties—they were not cool. They were not cool Top Gun mustaches like what we have now. Um, uh, also, there's a bit. Can you imagine these these two coming in, ordering honestly, you around? And hold on a second. I, I insist you be silent. So, okay. so I'm just kidding. I don't. I don't insist. So the so when I was a kid, and you would watch unsolved <laughs> mysteries, right? Like they would always show you these sinister drawings. Sometimes they would be sinister child drawings, like what kids see at night when they're sleeping. But uh, crime. The, but these forensic sketches always scared the hell out of me because there was something creepy and un, inhuman, and you have, they're obviously usually drawn with a neutral expression so that you can recognize them anywhere. They're not smiling. They're not happy. Like these two people clearly look like they just killed a couple of folks, right? But but look at them like they got the the, the guy went over Kedra. The guy Sorry. went over okay to show the opaque nature of light refracting through glass. He went over with the eraser and lessened the detail of the eyes. Uh also look at the shading uh around the sides of the chin and the neck, the guy on the right hand side. That shows some dimension. It's a three-dimensional person. It's not it's not Slender Man. It's not Paper Mario that killed these guys. Uh, also, you know, we got secondary sex characteristics here. Always a good choice. Guy on the right, got an Adam's apple. Guy on the left, got a mustache. Uh, but uh, hair, very bad. Eyebrows, pretty much the same. 
They've never seen eyebrows before. Uh, both wearing t-shirts. With the ex- they're wearing the exact same outfit. This happens sometimes. I mean, you show up to a murder and the person's wearing the same thing as you. You're like, Do we, does one of us even have to change? You're like, no, we're going to throw the clothes. Into so the embarrassing. Anyway. So what, what makes me sad, though, is that guy has some talent, but everyone's just like, well, this talentless guy was used to, <laughs> and it's just got to hurt, right? And now it's part of the permanent record, because here we are, you know, 40 years later. Stop putting it on the screen. So, well, dead leg, stop putting those on the screen. Damn it, dead leg. That's why I hate you so. Okay. Uh, all right. So those are your suspects, and those those pictures not only... Were taken from a child and drawn by a talentless hack, but those images, <laughs> who is probably a very good person, probably could bake brownies like nobody's business. But the that the the image of those two people was also taken from regressive hypnosis many yes. years later. Is that correct? So you're asking you're asking a, a, a an adolescent or an adult to go back in time, remember the worst day of his life, this thing that's shaping everything. And he'll say, you know, I went out there and I saw something. And obviously it was so traumatizing that, he, you know, whatever happened, he went back into the room and he went back to sleep because when he was found, he was asleep. He saw these two men. He saw this hor- horrific act and tried to repress it or something. On the show, we had uh, Jimmy Toro. He uh, survived a satanic sex cult. He was a little kid. And at one point, his horrible parents uh, put him in a casket with a dead person. And he didn't remember this most of his life. He had all kinds of issues growing up. But it wasn't until he had a, a, a moment of clarity, a break later, uh, that he was able to say what happened to him as a kid. So we're trying to capture that forensically. And for some reason, we're doing that with this fucking jabroni that can't draw. Seems like a wasted effort, but that's the best that we're doing right now, right? Okay, enough said about the sketch artist. Uh, poor kids <laughs> finding the dead. Can you imagine though coming out and seeing that? And and I actually have a brand new theory about what he might have saw and why he uh, forgot or decided to forget. Do we want to? Do we want to talk more about uh, the identity and background? Of, I'm not uh, done Justin, with the interviews, John. Justin Smart. We're not done with the <laughs> interviews. Well, I didn't know if you were ever no. going to stop stop laughing. So I'm done. Kidding. I'm done. All right. I've heard you say I'm done before, Kendra. I'm actually done. I'm good. I'm, I'm good. done with you. I'm going off with Rick Henshaw. <laughs> um, I've apologized like eight times for that. What do you want from me? I so don't know. Anyway. I would have done the same thing in your place. So one of the neighbors in particular was a little suspicious. His name was Martin Martin Smart. Now, if you remember, I just said the child that rendered, well, he didn't render these drawings. He gave the description for the drawings. His last name is Smart as well. Justin is Martin's stepson. Okay. So Martin Smart obviously lives in the uh, resort there during the interviews he was saying he didn't hear anything but mysteriously one of his hammers is missing oh how makes, convenient I know he makes this random statement that has nothing to do with anything and I just got done watching Com Center where you guys covered this suitcase thing 
And it's kind of the same deal where it's like she's bringing up all of these things that don't matter. It's irrelevant. And people do that to deflect from the actual topic at hand because they don't they don't want to have to admit to it. And I think that's what Martin was doing because why the fuck? How convenient, right? We've we've so, both faced instances like this before in our criminal justice careers. I, as a dispatcher, once took a 911 call from a man who said that his vehicle was stolen. And uh, so he's dialing 911. And I'm like, why are you dialing 911? Did this just occur? And he goes, no, my vehicle was stolen today at 1 p.m. Well, it's like 11 p.m. now. And um, so I've got him on mapping. And I can see that he's currently mapping from like a fucking river in a park. <laughs> So he's in the park at 11 p.m., like literally by the water where the river runs through the park. I'm like, why did you wait 10 hours? Why are you in the park by the water dialing 911 <laughs> saying that your vehicle was stolen 10 hours ago? The reason for that is, spoiler alert, on the road just outside the park, he hit somebody head on, fled from the vehicle down into the woods and tried to before a police officer could respond to the scene. Get it in first. You heard it from me first. The car was stolen. I wasn't driving it. Not responsible for it. I'm not going to go to jail for drinking and driving. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to be held responsible for those medical bills over there. It was some unknown phantom that did it. People always think by getting the word in first that there's a primacy effect that they're going to be believed. And by him throwing this out there right away, I'm like, hey, uh, a hammer was stolen from here. And if you think about it, that makes sense. The killer would have just taken a hammer from nearby, which is where I live. So, you know, I don't. <laughs> Who knows where that hammer is now? But, you know, I don't have a hammer. Exactly. And the mere and fact that there were two hammers, he never even had to mention that because the hammer's right there. You know, are, are his prints on it or aren't they? I mean, I don't know. Go ahead, though. Keep, keep going <laughs> with the interview. Okay. Um, that was really suspicious and weird. But Sheriff Doug Thomas later says that during the interviews and he and the polygraph, which he passed, which you and I will talk about in a second. Um, he said that Martin gave all the investigators endless clues, throwing suspicion away from him. So whatever he told the investigators, the sheriff says they believed him because he gave them endless reasons to believe him hmm. or to throw suspicion off of him. I don't know if he's trying to say we just couldn't get it out of him. Or if he's trying to defend the fact that his investigators didn't pry deep enough. I don't, I don't know what that's about. <clears throat> yeah. But he passed a polygraph and extensive questioning, which we spoke about this. We've talked about this before. Polygraphs are essentially useless. They're, they're a they're tool. They've never been admit admissible in courts. They were invented in the 1920s. It was 1923 when they said they're generally not reliable enough to be evidence. But some yeah. people still kind of swore by it that, you know, even though this isn't is ironclad as direct evidence in the same way that a fingerprint is, they put their faith in it. And I'm going to be honest with you now. Like, so we know that polygraphs are bullshit. We still use them all over the place. Police, mm -hmm. Criminal justice, police agencies, they they have candidates for police jobs go through these polygraph tests in which they ask them every single thing they've ever done. They they open themselves up to all kinds of embarrassing admissions, not just criminal stuff, but they want to make sure the person's telling the truth. So they'll ask them about all kinds of things. Right. And uh, it, it never occurs to a criminal justice agency, a police department, that it's in the best interest of the polygraph examiner to find deception and to fail a candidate 
So the police department has to keep finding candidates to put up for polygraph tests so that the examiner can keep charging for them. There's all the <laughs> earmarks of a scam. And even though it's a hundred plus years since we've invented the polygraph and a hundred years to this year that we've decided that polygraphs are bullshit. They don't even, they're not good enough for court to this day. We still use them to find candidates to exclude from criminal justice hiring. So to say that this sheriff or whatever put a lot of faith in the polygraph and you think he's a preposterous old bastard in 1981, look to your local agencies and see if they're putting <laughs> faith in polygraphs. Kedra, go ahead. So to continue with Martin Short, because you and I have uh, deductive reasoning skills and we can easily say this motherfucker's involved some way, shape, or form. <clears throat> um, Martin and Marilyn, his wife, smart, moved to Ketty um, to the resort with Marilyn's three children, Justin being one of them. The couple moved there after a domestic violence incident the year prior, and they basically just ran away. Or Martin took her and ran away is probably more what it, what it was going on there. A lot easier than facing charges. Yep. Go ahead. Yeah. Long history of abuse uh, reported by Marilyn. While they were there, Marilyn and Sue actually became really good friends. And Sue was giving her friendly counsel to leave Martin yeah. as any good friend would. Of course, he views it as a threat to the integrity of his family and his marriage and his own self-image. He doesn't yes, want to get course. divorced and go through all that. Go ahead. And this this built a lot of resentment in Martin towards Sue. At some point during the year, while they were living in, in Ketty, Martin kind of bulldozed his friend into the home. He allowed this man to live amongst his family uh, that man's name was John. <laughs> I'm going to butcher this, so please. John Boobady. Bobady. I think it's Bobady, <laughs> but they just called him Bo. And, they called uh, him Bo. Al although I would say for the sake of ease in this podcast that you should call him Bo, particularly since that was his given name. I would prefer, because this is a legal proceeding, that you refer to him as Bobady for the rest of, the, rest okay. of the podcast. And, uh, don't make me call my attorney on this one. All right. Well, Bobity was a <laughs> just, just call it Bo. I'm just kidding. Boobity's Bo, <laughs> Bo <laughs> was a convicted felon and a drug dealer from Chicago who went by the nickname Severin John. So oh. he had a couple of nicknames. I like Bo better, but he's definitely yes. the kind of guy I'm gonna have moving with my family. Yeah, exactly. He was a mob enforcer, allegedly. This is what I read somewhere. But he was a mob enforcer. He's down Why and he out. He's living in Ketty, California with a family. It almost sounds That's like a wild. Like, sitcom. Eh. Yeah, you know, it's, it's you know, the economy's down. I got laid off by the mob. <laughs> gonna move in with my old buddy and we're gonna start anew and out in a cabin in California. Coming this fall to CBS. <laughs> um there's a show that's kind of like that, so I'm thinking of it. Anyway, <clears throat> Bo had a real problem with John Sharp and his friend Dana. He referred to both of them as punks and no. accused Dana of stealing some amount of LSD from him. Oh. Right. That's not so, good, folks. Uh, L LSD is kind <clears throat> of a, an order beyond marijuana. This is, this is not the same as your kids finding your stash. Like... Uh, 
And if we're talking <laughs> about a former mob enforcer, I'm just going to guess that maybe there was a little bit of a, some, some drug trafficking going on. Go ahead. Oh, sure. Um, I have no doubt about that. The night of the murders, Marilyn says that uh, Martin, Marilyn, and Bo all got together and they were going to go to the bar. They stopped in at Sue's house, asked her if she wanted to go because I guess they were all kind of friends. But They're like, hey, we're establishing an alibi. Did you want to come with us? (laughs) We're establishing an alibi for your murder. So do you want to (laughs) come? It's only polite to include you since you're going to be murdered. But she declined. So Sue didn't go. The three of the three of them left. They went out around eleven o'clock. They come back. Marilyn doesn't want to. She's done for the night, so she goes to bed. Martin and Bo allegedly go back out to the bar. And around two o'clock in the morning, Marilyn wakes up to them burning something in their wood stove. Let's back up a little bit about that alibi, just because I want to make sure that I'm not just casting a pall upon what is otherwise a good old-fashioned American night at the bar. It's what. You and I would do if you had any respect for me at all. But uh, they went to the bar and they're uh, they're wearing three piece suits. So they go in there and they draw all kinds of attention to themselves. This is this is Caddy, California. This is a failing resort town. I don't know what kind of bar you go into that's uh, playing uh, country music and you're wearing a three piece suit. It's not a bar that you're going to see around here. They go in there and uh, they, they make a scene. People are going to remember them there because they're going to remember the suits. They also say the reason why they left early is because they switched the music over to rock and roll from country, which it's obviously not, you know, I don't know. That just doesn't seem like a good reason to leave, but whatever, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, that was that mm-hmm. was their stated reason for having leaving the bar. But later, yes. the two men are seen by Marilyn burning something. Go ahead. Yes. That's all she leaves it at. I don't know what it was they were burning. She just woke up to them burning something. So that's pretty much that's pretty much the case at that point. There's really not a lot more. There's not much else to go on. Uh, soon after the murders, Marilyn and Martin did separate, and Martin moved about a hundred miles away to Butte County. Okay. In 1984, uh, a bottle collector. Because back then they had, you know, the glass bottles and they were worth some money. People would go around and collect trash off the side of the road, take them to get recycled, get some money. Mm-hmm. This person was collecting bottles near Feather River Canyon in Butte County and stumbled a- across a human skull. Oh. Yep. He called local law yep. enforcement. They come out, they collect the skull. Go ahead. Yep. But it's probably just some primitive person, right? Some caveman, some ancient thing. Nothing that police need to investigate. Yeah, I should have just left it alone, to be honest. Probably. Best left unsolved. That's the Jonathan <laughs> Bates way. That's why I'm not a cop. Well, However, maybe they would have... Go ahead, John. However, <laughs> something something exciting and macabre happened to point the investigators in a direction about this totally unrelated skull that we brought up for no reason. Go ahead. I was going to say, I was going to do a flawless segue. Damn it. But <clears throat> they might have left it alone, except an anonymous caller called in a tip and said that the skull belonged to 12-year-old Tina Sharp from Kenny, California. Now, this person is unknown. Person, they have guilty information that's obviously your suspect. Run the records. Go hook them and book them. Case solved. On the next True Crime Tuesday, we're talking about... No, okay. John. So, something happened here. Something went wrong, right? 
So nobody knows who this person is. I we've talked about this before too, where you know, back in the day, I don't know on the communications end what type of technology they had to record this kind of stuff. If they even knew what phone number it was coming from right away. If the person's not on the phone for more than like 30 seconds, can you even determine where it's coming from? I don't know any of this. I don't even know if it was a man or a woman. Even today, it could take a long time (laughs) if it's not a landline. And how it was recorded is it would have been on a big reel, uh, like what you see in those old movies where you see a tape going between two reels. I am not joking. That is called a a cassette. It's like, uh, or a big uh, reel of audio tape. And uh, the thing will stop and start when the phone when the phone records, so or when the phone turns on. So that's how tapes like that were kept, uh, and they were in these big reels that you had to play like that. So uh, that is not a pristine or high fidelity way of doing that. And frankly, we're lucky that the recording survived at all because those things just get taped over after a while. Yeah. So this anonymous caller calls, and. When the autopsy is done or the examination is done, it is confirmed that this human skull belongs to Tina Sharp. Oh, no. How how convenient. Martin's a a, a thousand, (laughs) not a thousand, a hundred miles away from Kenny. Where Tina went missing, where the murders took place, and her remains happened to be found in the same place that Martin just ended up three years later. Mm -hmm. This is 1984 at this point. The Sharps and Dana were murdered at in 1981. It's a little, that's a little suspicious. Question I'm just going to say what, what, what's the motive for not killing her at the scene? What's the motive for taking her with? And if they were seen by Marilyn burning something in the fireplace later, what's the location of Tina during that time? And what's the time frame for them getting her out to Butte? Was she kept alive for some amount of time before they got out there and, dumped either her body or left her out there you know like i said if she's a special needs kids and they drive her just 100 miles away and tell her to get the hell out of the car and they know she's not going to make it is it possible that she died of exposure or some other you know uh you can call it natural causes because she was out somewhere where she wasn't supposed to be she was still murdered because she was placed in that situation but what what would be the reason it wasn't because of a conscience look at the way that john and dana and sue were all treated um on the other hand speaking of conscience the three boys in the bedroom, uh, 10, five, and of course, uh, 10, 10, 10 year old Rick, five year old Greg, and of course, uh, his stepson. I think Justin was like 11 or something like that. Yeah, 11 year old stepson. So, going back, uh, circling back around, uh, to the composite drawings, uh, made by Justin, I have a, a theory about that, maybe why they look so strange, or maybe why they don't uh, make sense in addition to the artist not being uh, up to snuff, what if uh, Justin Smart comes out of his room and uh, sees his stepdad? Sees his stepdad, Martin, committing the murder along with uh, Bo or whatever. And uh, he knows if he ever says anything that he's going to basically get the same treatment. Uh, You're scared of your parents growing up, particularly when that's the kind of person that your, your parent is. You know, if Martin's had a history of domestic problems, he's seen his father at his worst his worst. He knows this is a shameful thing. He knows not to talk about it. And maybe, you know, maybe, I don't know if he represses something later, but maybe when he's pressed about what he knows about the investigation, you know, I can't imagine that he was just volunteering this stuff that he he just like one day says, Oh, I remember something. Uh, It's possible that, you know, that that he was, his feet were put to the fire about it and he had to come up with uh, 
details on two men, just unknown men that were made up and made out made out of nothing. I don't. The sketches obviously don't look very much like Martin or like Bo. And so, if the, the details of these two men were made out of whole cloth, you know, again, sorry for for digging on the artist, but they might just if the kids just giving random details about what they look like, they might look like that. It's true, and even I mean, if you're so in, incredibly terrified. So, I don't know. Not everybody believes in hypnosis, but let's just pretend for a minute that we do. Are you hypnotizing me right now? <laughs> I don't have my my pocket watch right now, but... God damn it. You know I'm relaxed <laughs> and I'm very susceptible. <laughs> so, um, let's say hypnosis works. You have to make sure the person who's doing the hypnosis is doing it correctly. You don't want a talentless to, person doing it, yeah. No, you have to be a very talented hypnotic person. I don't know what they're called. Hypno hypnotizer <laughs> guy. Yeah. So <clears throat> that has to be in play. You have to ask the right questions. I have a friend who does um, past life therapy. Again, oh whether you goodness. believe in that or not, it's up to you. But there's specific questions you have to ask. Just because you're under hypnosis doesn't mean you just your subconscious just opens up. You have to. It's like it's an investigation. So, if the person's not asking the right questions, or Justin is so incredibly traumatized that even his subconscious is it's so deep in there, you you know it could absolutely be what you're talking about, where the fear of retaliation overrides the memory, and his little brain just was doing everything that it can to protect itself. Because you have to remember they don't, too, you know, that being being the stepson means they have a weird dynamic. Like he doesn't love or trust this guy at all. You know, no. I think he's he, particularly if he's abusing his mother. He's just he's he's a he's a threatening stranger, a continued presence in the home. You know, a, mm -hmm. a constant yes. threat of, of retaliation for him saying anything. Go on. So, um. Anyway, where are we at the skull? Right, the skull's been found. It's been skull. identified as Tina Sharp. <clears throat> well, Tina's been found, but they don't really make a connection between Tina and Martin. So this this case is still, even though this is this clue has been found and they've they know where she's at, it's still cold. It's still unsolved. Martin eventually confesses to the killings to his therapist because he's oh struggling. Gosh. He's struggling with PTSD from these murders. He, but he denied having anything to do with the boys. He only admits to Tina and Sue. Points a finger back at Bo. Which kind of makes sense because Sue was killed in a particular way. And the boys were killed similarly but different from Sue. And Bo had a problem with the boys. And Martin had Good. a problem with Sue. So if we're going with that theory, that does make sense. Martin also the, kind of neither one of them had a problem with any of the kids back in the in the back room back there. Right. And they may not have even known they were in there, to be honest with you. Um, Martin gives another weird, vague clue, although I guess confessing isn't really vague, but you know what I mean. Martin gives another clue to us via a letter he writes to Marilyn, in which he says, I've paid the price for your love, and now I bought it with four lives. And you tell me we're through, great. It's what are the four pretty, lives? Pretty damning. 
Um, I think, you know, a jury would find that very compelling if indeed it got admitted as evidence. Um, when I first heard that, I, you know, you have to hold out skepticism as an investigator because you don't want to, you have to look beyond the obvious. And the obvious thing is, as well, he's talking about these poor people that he killed. But when he told the therapist that he killed someone, he took no responsibility for the two lives. So, uh, meaning John and Dana. So maybe, you know, he's responsible for that in a legal sense, but he doesn't feel morally responsible to the point where he told the therapist, I had nothing to do with the boys. Yeah. Um, You're so still there committing it. The Still there committing it. So, you know, who knows how his his uh, his uh, conscience parses that, you know. Um, so I'm I'm holding out some some kind of hope that um, I wouldn't say hope, I guess, but maybe skepticism that that's not maybe not what he means, but it's probably the most damning piece of evidence. But it's not the only piece of evidence. We there's a, a new investigator who uh, worked for the sheriffs at the time. Uh, his name is Mike Gramberg, uh, Gamberg. He worked for Gamberg. the Plumas County Sheriff's Office. Uh, he was actually fired uh, from the sheriff's office back in the 80s for basically talking shit about the sheriff and saying that the sheriff did a fucking terrible job at investigating this. Uh, there's been some other podcasts who say that uh, Martin and the sheriff were some kind of buds or something. And so he basically gave him a pass. Martin went out and uh, did ride alongs with the sheriff or whatever. That's all speculation. We can't substantiate any of that. But uh, Gamberg uh, did indeed get fired and he was brought back onto the sheriff's office uh, recently. I think it was maybe 2016 or 2018. Yes, 2016. And he was made a special investigator on the case. <clears throat> I guess I think I think Gamberg maybe maybe even have known John or Dana at the time. I don't know how yeah. well he knew them if they were near the neighborhood, but. There's some interest there. Obviously, he he knew these kids that got murdered. Um, he was their karate instructor. Very good. Okay, so you so you <laughs> knew that detail. That's why we're a good mm-hmm. team. So when he was investigating it, he found the tape where the the caller to the communication center said that you know this uh, uh, the skull that you found is Tina. She's from the Ketty murders, a hundred miles away, uh, which is you know definitely telling. Uh, that had never been properly logged as evidence. So it wasn't a lead for them to even pursue. I guess he found out about it and it took him 10 days to find it in a box and evidence. And uh, this being a, an old recording from 81, not not put on the best technology. It was probably put on a tape that had already been recorded over many times. So you're getting all kinds of scratches and backgrounds. And of course, your list, the re- recorded audio came from a phone from 1981 and the quality wasn't great back then. And so uh, he's not really able to tell a whole lot from that. Obviously, subsequent or uh, previous phone records from 81 are kind of hard to find. Uh, but there's even still more evidence. I know that we mentioned two hammers at the beginning. Kendra, yes. did you want to talk about the other yeah. hammer? I will right now. Thank you. So you're welcome. I try to have the pageantry. Missing... I try to have a sense of, you know, the, these other podcasts all have a mood about them. I'm a mood ruiner because I'm apparently. Oh, I, I know. Anyway, <laughs> the <laughs> I'm going to pay for that later, folks. <laughs> I'm going to get that Civil War chest full of bees. You mark God my words. It. That's my chest. My grandfather fought for that. <laughs> uh, Drew will get that one. So the missing hammer is... alimony like you do every month. <laughs> and I'll pay it in pennies. You're like, it's a pittance to me. I only take it from you because it hurts you. Yeah, I've got a rich 95-year-old judge husband. I don't need your alimony, but I'll take it. Folks, I'm going to tell you right now, when you get divorced, number one, get a good lawyer. 
Number two, it cannot be the same lawyer as the person you're divorcing. <laughs> you cannot save money that way. It's not like a realtor, okay? <laughs> the missing hammer, John. We must talk about this missing hammer. It was found by uh, Arkies. This is a term that's new to me. Uh, this is something that metal detectors call themselves. Uh, it was found in a local pond near the resort that had been dried up. It was said to have appeared to have been placed there intentionally. Now, I don't know what that means because hammers are pretty heavy, so they kind of lay. They look, I would think it would look intentional regardless, even if you chucked it or if you just placed it there. I don't well, know. Well, I think, uh, you know, if there's no construction site there, there's no reason for a hammer to be there. I think that's kind of where the intentionality maybe comes in. Okay. That's that's a good point. Okay. Well, excuse it me. A, it was also in a dried up lake that had been wet at one point. So That is usually what dried up lakes are. They were wet at some point. Previously wet. And now wet. they're not. Previously wet. So... <laughs> Um, and that was pretty much it was taken for evidence Gamberg took it for evidence didn't really go anywhere in 2018 DNA was found on a piece of duct tape that was in evidence that was connected to a known live suspect That's not, excuse me subject not suspect yet um, according to Sheriff Hagwood who was the sheriff in 2018 uh, it's believed that he says it's believed that there might have been a handful of individuals that committed these murders and that this DNA belongs to one of them, which would explain why we don't have updates because I was reading it and I was like, 2018 was five years ago. You have DNA, but sometimes those types of things, like you might have this information, but if you, there's stuff that the public doesn't know and doesn't need to know about investigations like this. And I've said this before on the show. I understand that America wants answers, especially for these, these types of cases. It's like a 40 year old case with no arrests, no justice. Three children were murdered. You're calling out from their graves for justice. <laughs> and it's, I understand the desire to want answers and, and all of that, but these things take time. And if you want a conviction and you want justice, they have to be done a certain way. And because this case is so old and evidence was not kept very well, it could take a really long time for these investigators to actually make an arrest if they ever do. These people are these people are probably older now. Well, I don't know. Martin Smart and Bo are as old as you can get. They're both dead. Yes. Martin passed away in 2000 and Bo passed away in 1988. And one of the reasons why we know that he confessed to his to his therapist is because after he passed away, this therapist came out with this information. They're not allowed to talk about stuff like that because of the therapist client privilege. Mm -hmm. And but unless he, there's he, imminent threat. Yeah. But even then uh, something said from one person to another like that, I, Kendra, a former police officer, she's had slam dunk cases before she'll take it to a state's attorney, a prosecutor, and they'll be like, we need more. We want more from this. This isn't ironclad. It's not open and shut. And in a case that's already 40 years old, uh, you've got to have some pretty pretty good compelling evidence for the state to say we have an interest in still solving this. So 
even if they have some pretty good evidence, if your two primary suspects are, are dead and gone and you're not, you don't want to go through the expense of possibly, uh, you know, if there's any accessories after the fact, I know Gamberg has said that there are still, there was some um, DNA from, a, from a, uh, take it from tape that uh, points to some people that are still living. Obviously, if they had any involvement, they should be brought to justice. But it's not just as easy as we have some evidence and we're going to take it to the state's attorney and it's they're going to get it done. State's attorneys have an interest. They have many more pressing cases. I don't know if you know this, but there's been some other murders in Plumas County since 1981. And they have those to prioritize over this. So Correct. Not, yeah, it's not, it's not an immediate thing, you know. Not that, it's not that the Sharps don't deserve justice, but it's like it's been so long and the gears of justice turn so slowly and it's a process and you really have to be able to put it over the line to go after it. I could ex that could explain why you know we're still waiting after five years. Yeah, and and who knows who this person is or what the else they could be possibly involved in that's mm -hmm. time sensitive and needs to be addressed prior to this. Like you said, it's mm -hmm. kind of low priority because it's almost forty years old and both of the main suspects are dead. So, no. what's the motivation? I, I understand it's not the answer people want to hear, but it's the truth. Yeah. Um. So there's a couple of theories that I'll go over real quick and then um, we can wrap it up. I think we pretty much covered everything. Close, We're close to the end, but I have a little bit more. This is okay. cabin 28. If you're watching, uh, it's been demolished now, but this is kind of the site of where this all went down. You can see that it's very rustic. They're kind of tucked into the trees that there's a cabin in the background. Uh, but cabin 28 was eventually it was demolished. Uh, it was the site of some uh, morbid speculation. People were going there. They were damaging it. They were sort of being disrespectful for what it was. But ultimately, uh, it's a disrespectful thing to sort of just keep around as a monument to the horrors that went on there. Case in point, uh, here's the family. Uh, we have Sue and her five kids there, some of which made it through the horrors of that night and some who didn't. And some whose lives were changed in a terrible way forever. And it's uh, it's horrifying. You know, we, we joke about it and we mentioned the sketch artist and we had a good time. And it, like I said, it's morbid speculation, but... You know, we, we did have a, fa a family destroyed and hopefully yes. justice does come eventually. But go ahead. I'll let you uh, wrap it up. And then I have my, my last point. OK, so there's a couple of theories floating around. There were a lot of there were a lot of suspects in the case. We only covered the ones that we can deduce did it because otherwise we'd be here for four hours. And that's crazy. One of the theories is that. The uh, the boys, John and Dana, when they hitchhiked back to Ketty. The hitchhikers basically followed them into the home and committed this horrible act. This doesn't really make sense to me because what's the motivation if it was a singular thing like when Jeffrey Dahmer did that with that one guy with his first kill? Mm -hmm. It was just him and that guy. So that makes more sense. What would be the motivation to go in there and just obliterate a family like that? To put up a fight like that? Like to, It doesn't make sense to me. But it is a theory. Another theory that, you know, it's just Martin and Bo were plotting and they were angry and they were probably drug and alcohol fueled and they decided to go take their anger out on this family. That's a very plausible theory. The last theory I kind of like, I'm not trying to tell anybody what to believe, but this is my personal favorite. That sounds bad, but you know what I mean? There was the theory is that there was a love triangle between Martin, Sue, and Marilyn 
And the reason why this is, is kind of could be true is because Marilyn left Martin the day of the murders. It was also believed she might have enlisted help from Bo. She knew he was a mob enforcer. He was crazy. He would do it. He had connections to get rid of Sue. And he didn't like the kids. It's more motivation for him to just go over there and lay hate on these people. Um, And she threw Martin out of the bus immediately, which isn't in and of itself any evidence to suggest that she was in a love triangle or did a hit job, but when you put it with all the other things, it kind of does make sense. Um, And also, Sue, there's no evidence, I wasn't even going to say this because there's nothing to say that she actually did this, but it kind of goes with the theory. Apparently, she uh, dabbled in drugs and prostitution herself, and if that's the case, if Martin's paying her, I believe she would have put her friendship with Marilyn to the side because she's got five kids to feed and take care of. Mm. And Marilyn finds out she's been abused by this guy. He's been cheating on her the whole time. And now he's cheating with the one friend that she's found and made. I mean, crazier things have happened. So I actually believe that theory. Uh, you know, if he was, having trouble with Marilyn, their marriage is on the rocks. He's pretty much a terrible person. You know, let's, if he's our primary suspect, it's a conceit at this point that he is, but uh, his infidelity was one of opportunity. She's there. She's next door. She's in that little cabin community or whatever. And yeah, she's friends with Marilyn or whatever. And uh, he, you know, men will make these decisions. They'll go out and do this, but then they don't want to have to pay a cost for it. So if it means that he's going to lose Marilyn, you know, for him to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. Certainly the most convincing way to do that is to end uh, Sue's life so that there's no more temptation in the neighborhood. She is gone. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but like, well, I mean, the logic, I'm a little glib about it, but I mean, I, if, you know, if you're a guy like him and, and if he is as bad as we say, I could see how that would be his, uh, his reasoning or his rationale for doing such a thing like that. The case in point, you know, he didn't have anything to do with the two boys by his own admission, and he didn't didn't touch any of the three kids back in the in the back room. I think the fact that the three kids were left out of it, uh, and that there were motives to to murder the two boys, the punks that were stealing the LSD, and the situation with Sue, I think it points to them very strongly as having motives to do it. If it was a crazy stranger who gave uh, John and Dana a ride back from Quincy, why didn't they go in and slay the the three kids? I don't know. I mean, maybe you just didn't know they were there, but it certainly is interesting. Yeah. Uh, the, so the this, this scene was was horrific. There was evidence that it went on for a long time. That there was pain and suffering, and uh, just truly a, a terrible and horrific crime. And it's one that's kind of gone down in the annals of uh, of true crime. And uh, if you're more interested about this, uh, you could go to uh, keddie28.com. That's k-e-d-d-i-e-two-eight.com. There's a kind of an old fashioned website about it where it's got pictures of all the the principal parties. It's got forums in there that where people kind of spout off their different theories. There's some pretty salacious theories in there that, frankly, I don't want to touch because I think some of them are in bad taste. Uh, saying that uh, you know Tina was a part of these things or that Sheila was, I think that those things are egregious. Um, but you'll you'll see other people who are involved, uh, other people who are kind of on the peripheral guys like D Lake. Uh, he's the he um, I believe he was involved in lending 
uh, the pellet gun to someone. So he, he the pellet gun initially belonged to, to him. He was someone else who was in the area. So, you know, where did the gun come from? Where did it go? These physical things tie people together. It's very interesting. And the final thing I'll say about that on the website is that there's someone who contributes to the website who seems to have a lot of information, which jibes with a lot of facts to the point where uh, Gamberg has used this information to kind of bring him quickly up to speed on, on a lot of the details of the case. And a lot of people who see this guy posting in forums are kind of wondering, you know, what do you know and when did you know it? And uh, are you kind of getting your rocks off here talking about a case that you were maybe a party to? Are you afraid to come forward? Is this a timid person who's doing the best they can to put information out there? I don't know. The internet used to be kind of a mysterious place where you, every website was like a QAnon thing where people were posting things and you had no idea who the hell they were and uh, people had good <laughs> information. Uh, and people, and the internet, you know, just, uh, it all used to be a kind of a true crime thing go, going on all the time because it wasn't like Facebook where people were out there with their real identities on the internet. You kind of missed a cool thing with the old internet. Uh, but uh, Keddy28s.com is that website if you wanted to, to dive into some of the deeper aspects. Anything else on this case, Kendra? No, that's that's the extent of the case. I mean, that's it's still unsolved. I think they're I'm sure that Gamberg and whoever else is now probably on the case is doing a fantastic job trying to scrounge whatever they can from this log of evidence that was is not very good, if we're being honest. And I'm hopeful that something will come out of it at some point, hopefully soon. Uh, you always, that's... You always, lo always love to see that, that resolution, in particular on a cold case. Um, yeah. Of course. I, I yeah. guess if, 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 if anything comes up, we'll be sure to mention it on the show. Um, failure to Stop uh, is the number one podcast and platform where we entertain and inform first responders. Uh, True Crime Tuesday is what you hear and see on Tuesday. I presume that's what day it is right now. On yeah. Wednesday, you get uh, all the news you need to not sound like an asshole. That comes from Josh Dudleg, who is uh, my nemesis, as you know. On Thursday, it's uh, the Cobb Center with Drew Breezy. This coming Thursday, we're going to round out what is hopefully the last episode <laughs> about the long suitcase saga. Guys, I say that because at one point we had no ideas for a show. And I was up at four in the morning sweating it out like I, you know, I'm supposed to put on a show every week. It's the day of. I got nothing. I'm scrolling through my phone and I come across this. Oh, band killed in suitcase. And I said it to Drew. Drew does all his research. It explodes on it. Turns into this huge thing. Now we can't get away from it. So. I love the case, ready to be done, ready to just not know what the hell I'm doing every week again. That would be great. On you love Friday, case. yes, it's it's a good case. Honestly, we should, <laughs> probably should have uh, probably should have had you cover that. That's a true crime case, barely an Edmund one, and a lot a lot of a, a lot of um, not a lot of like uh, true crimey like uh, mystery stuff like this one. It was it's kind of interrogation. So I don't know, maybe it's Drew's thing. Anyway, on Friday, you got. Um, Eric and Drew, they do the main show, Failure to Stop, where they break down all the news that affects the thin gold line this week. Uh, they're going to have, uh, well, I mean, this probably airs after this week. So they're down in Pontra Vedra, Florida with you, Kendra. Everybody's hanging out, having a good time, talking about what a chump John is. I'm not sure what's going to be on the show that week. I think they're talking about doing a live show from the weigh-in with Kem Shamrock. They're doing the uh, Valor bare knuckle fight down there uh, in, in Pontra Vedra in, in Jacksonville, Florida. It's going to be a good time, uh, particularly since I won't be there. I know that uh, 
frequently something that came up at our divorce was that I ruined every good time simply by being there. So you could be assured if you're going to go Wolfpack, that uh, John will not be there. You're going to have a good time. On Sunday nights, true crime. Uh, no, it's uh, top <laughs> secret information, which is not the same as true crime. They actually handle the opposite end of the spectrum where it's all the paranormal stuff. They had a Freemason on last week. They like to talk about cryptids and all kinds of stuff. That's with Conservative Amp. That's a separate show, but you should download it. Give it a shot. It's uh, If you're a classic uh, Tansy fan, Tansy's at his most Tansiest on that show. And then, of course, rounding out the week in this weird way is Monday on Uncuff with J. Darrell White. Two failed cops, former comedians. I don't know what they are. They talk, <laughs> they, they talk about the police news, and uh, they just have a good time with it, kind of like we do. On Patreon, you can catch me and Kendra. We do uh, bonus content on there. Uh, subscribe if you want even more failure stuff. There's always ways to get more of it. Otherwise, uh, Kendra, uh, guns up. Giddy up. Good night. Stay safe. And whatever you do, don't get yourself true crimed. All right. Stick around. 100 shows. Good night. <laughs>